Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. What's risk got to do, got to do with it? What's risk? (laughs) Easy. Okay, well, so I think we all know now what we're going to talk about today. Risk, baby. Whitney Houston. Oh, right. Risk. Man, risk feels like one of those words that smart people in the investment community bat around a lot. Really? Doesn't everybody talk about risk? (laughs) Well, maybe not in the same way. So that's actually a good segue into today's show because I think risk is an often misunderstood and and poorly communicated concept. And I'm not sure we're going to shed any real light on it today, to be honest with you. Well, I, I think human beings in general are very bad at this concept. And I think even professional investors, you and I, everybody is... Because we're not wired for this, right? We're, we're actually wired to run away from things that are scary. Yeah, like bears. And not think in terms of probability. That's really not how our brains are, are set up and how we're wired. But hopefully you can you know, have some tools and a framework to think about risk. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And that can help you, you know, combat your animal spirits. Yeah, because at the end of the day, risk is going to be a part of every single investment decision that is ever made, right? There's there's no such thing as a risk-free investment. And as I'm saying that, I, I realize that there probably are. Well, there's yeah, the risk-free <laughs> risk return. Free, yeah, maybe the U.S. Treasury. Or well, you could actually bond. argue that that's not completely risk-free. Right? Yeah, of course, we can, we there, can print you know that away. Right? Yeah, there's really there's just so yeah. Let's just, let's just go out on a limb and say that there's going to be risk associated with every investment you make and. And it's it's hard to have a framework with which to think about that. It's hard to think about it rationally, and it's hard to think about it systematically. So, uh, yeah, let's just talk a little bit about that today. Sort of how how we think about it. We'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about maybe maybe we'll start off with how the academics talk about it. So, Brad, maybe you kick it off with how do the sort of the academics or the, you know the ivory tower folks or the people that write about investments for a living. How do they think about risk? Yeah, I'm having nasty flashbacks of going back to finance classes, right? Which I never took, so that's why I'm, I'm leaning on you so, on this. So one. I have a, just a barely slight edge on you then. Yeah. Uh, that was a while ago. But yeah, so the finance theory on this is is actually built around the fact that because humans aren't that great at figuring out what risk is, they tried to, because they're academics, they tried to make it more scientific and quantifiable. Quantifiable, And, and they, so they applied math to it. So there's a couple of professors, and they all seem to come out of uh, University of Chicago, right, which is known for economics and finance. Mm. It might just be because it's really cold and they could just study harder. But Yeah, they, they do seem to spend a lot of time inside in the winter there. Yeah. So these guys, uh, one of them, Harry Markowitz, uh, there's a couple other guys, but Harry came up with modern portfolio theory. Oh, that guy won a, didn't he win a Nobel? Yeah, he did win a Nobel. Good for Harry. Yeah, Harry. Who knew? I think he's in San Diego now. Yeah, I would be. He's like, look, I won the Nobel. I'm going to have my choice of where I'm going to go teach, and it's going to be San Diego. So he came up with this modern portfolio theory, which basically half of Wall Street is built on, where you're trying to assemble a portfolio of assets in order to maximize your returns, given the level of risk for each of those assets. I see. Okay. So given that, given you're willing to accept this level of risk, you might as well maximize your returns, right? Yeah. And so there'd you, be no point in saying, well, look, I could make more with this level of risk, but I'm going to go a little less here. Yeah. Okay, that makes so, sense. So, and what, basically what they do is that they That was the Nobel a, Prize winner? That was it. Jesus. Yeah. He took a napkin and he drew an X uh, and a Y graph and then he plotted out the return is on this, uh, is the this, Y. Is this the efficient frontier? Is that what you're talking Ooh, about? Ooh. See? You did, you did know this. I think I knew somebody who took a finance class. Yeah. So, the you got the X and Y, right? Axis. 
uh, axis, axis C, axi, what, what did axes. I forget? Axes, hello. And you plot out, right, this efficient frontier where you're trying to maximize return given that level of risk for each asset. What we're talking about is volatility. So all these academics assigned risk and made it equal to volatility, which, you know, we can have that argument. I don't think that that is actually valid. But Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I don't have a Nobel Prize. Well, no, and you should, though, because I, well, actually, let's wait. Let's hear your theory on this. <laughs> Let's see how you work around this one. Yeah. Well, so because they were trying to assign numbers to it and math, they had to use something. So they said, okay, well, let's use the standard deviation of this stock, right? Okay, this stock. Yeah, and this is all like built around the public markets, right? Where you actually have lots of data to measure this. Exactly. Stock, which is part so, of the issue we face. Yeah, we're down the public markets. So they use a standard deviation as a proxy for risk. And they say, okay, because this Why don't you, why don't you stock, explain standard deviation for those of us who what, haven't taken advanced math classes? Let's not go that deep. <laughs> let's just call it volatility. It's just, it varies more than, let's say, another asset. Or so it's, you, it's some measure of how the asset price changes on a day-to-day or a month-to-month basis, right? Yes. So if one asset returns 10% year in and year out, right, on average, but fluctuates a ton, right, to get to that 10% return, Price goes up, price goes down, price yeah, yeah. goes up, it's price all over goes the down. Place, right? okay. That's volatile. That's volatile. Okay. Whereas another stock is just kind of plodding along at, oh, 11, 9%. Oh, 11 again. That's right. not volatile. That's not volatile. So you can make the argument that that, is a, that asset is not as risky. I feel like I'm a more volatile asset than you are. Would I be correct in saying you that? You would be right on the nose on that one. <laughs> My standard deviation is pretty high. <laughs> okay, fair But enough. it makes life interesting, that's for sure. It's love, more of a roller coaster. I love you, sweetie. Yeah, whereas, you know, I'm more of the log ride and he's more of the, you know. The steady Eddie. Yeah, the steady Eddie versus the, the boring. Uh, the, sorry. Wow. <laughs> I'm joking. Versus the crazy, you know, up and down Fun, roller coaster. Fun. Exciting. Dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all the, all this, Harry won his Nobel basically saying, don't invest in guys like Grayson. Okay, I got you. <laughs> Good for you, Harry. Yeah. So I get it, right? And I think where this is applicable, this is extremely applicable for short-term investments where you can blow up. If you have a short-term outlook and you are investing in something that is very volatile, and especially if you apply some level of debt to it, right? you put leverage on it, you get a loan out on it, scary, and it's volatile, yeah. then yeah, then volatility can equal risk. But if you take that same asset and apply longer term to it, just a reasonable amount of time, mm-hmm then I would argue that that volatility means bupkis. Okay. Right? It's just what you're getting overall, the span of that investment, what is your return? Yeah. So if That's you, what matters. That makes sense. If you have, you have a long-term horizon, you don't have to sell. So if it's, hey, if it's down for whatever reason, you know, you hold on to it. And then when you, you sell, when it's at, a, you know, where your expected returns want it to be, you, you have that freedom or that luxury. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So, okay, so the academics generally use volatility as sort of a synonym for risk is essentially the the point here, right? And your point is like that probably is true in the short term, but maybe in the long run, it's just less applicable. Yeah, I just think they can't help themselves too, right? They are not usually practicing investors. They are theoretical. They're they're in these books. They're coming up with mathematical equations. And it's it's to me, it's like you go to the racetrack, right? You bet on horses, and they give everybody who shows up the racetrack this crazy program that's got all these numbers of the, the times and the splits and the weight and the condition of the track, all these different variables that ninety nine percent of the visitors couldn't possibly calculate and crunch the numbers that quickly. But people love it. Yeah. They love trying to make bets based on what they think is an edge. And this concept of volatility 
equating to risk kind of goes with that. Yeah, and to be fair to the academics and the crowd, and great people, by the way. We great, love, just wonderful just, people. Um, you know, if you're going to sort of systematically study something and you, you need it to be quantifiable and you need to be able to measure and test it and, and look at data and and frank, so much about risk is is extremely tough to quantify, right? I mean, it's like there's some pretty abstract concepts associated with how successful an investment might be. And so, frankly, it's just it's probably not really in the realm of, of academia or science. It's actually it kind of comes down a lot more to sort of your instincts, your gut or your, what you're comfortable with and your personal level of you know, your personal appetite and things like that. Right. Yeah. And it's not foolproof, right? You can come up with a crazy model that uses all these formulas and... And, and then 2008 happens. 2008 happens. Or like one of my professors who was also a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Sorry, <laughs> Nobel Prize winner, not Nobel Peace. He didn't disarm <laughs> North peace, Korea. Peaceful guy. Yeah. Uh, What's he, his name? Well, let's not get into let's his give name. Him a shout I don't out. want to name drop. <laughs> so, sure, we could triangulate well, on him. So he was part of a hedge fund, a very famous, infamous rather hedge fund that blew up, uh, I want to say mid 90s. Uh, and it was just a accumulation of, of these brilliant guys that came up with these formulas that were all based on modern portfolio theory that thought they could game the system. And you know, what ended up happening, some crazy risky events, some outlier events, I think it was the Russian debt crisis uh, happened and their their model went to hell. So you, you can't perfect the system through math is my I guess my point is risk never is going to be a, a verifiable equation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, well, and it's at, at the very least, it's, the, you know, the theory is probably sound, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, one, the real world is much more complicated than probably a lot of, you know, the, the sort of the theory would have you believe. And so it's actually hard to kind of, it's hard to probably ver you know, apply the the theory to real world scenarios once they get pretty complex, I, I would imagine. 100%. Now, so let's talk about how we think about risk, right? Yeah. Given, given well, that we disagree with the academics. Well, yeah, well, especially given that we're not even in the public markets, right? So th yeah. a lot of this doesn't even apply to what we do, right? Because we're investing in private, you know, non-public, you know, assets that don't have a, a, a stock price or an asset price. I'm going to push back there. So I think that... Uh, Please do. <laughs> I actually think that a lot of the same concepts are applicable. But yeah, you're right in terms of we don't have to worry as much about the short-term quarterly results as some of these hedge fund guys and people in public markets. Yeah. I mean, how do you get the volatility of an individual asset, I guess is what I'm asking, if it's not, if there isn't this sort of published market price? Okay, you win. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I wanted. I'm working on admitting when I'm wrong these days in, in my household. Good so, for you. Yeah. Good job, brother. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah. So, I think, well, I guess, so, yeah, this is interesting because I'd, I'd like to hear about how you think about risk when you do your deals because, you know, for, for one, I think real estate is, would be considered less risky than private equity and venture. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. So, I think about it in terms of two things. The risk of permanent loss of capital and the risk that we're not going to hit a minimal acceptable return. Okay. So either <laughs> what's the risk you you lose everything and what's the risk you just don't hit what you wanted to hit. Yeah. Okay. The risk that you blow up versus the risk you hit a you know, bunt base hit. Yeah. You know, versus uh, a double, a triple, what you're really kind of shooting for. And do you I mean do you quantify this or is this is this No. Okay, this isn't like this isn't a number you're going to write down and this circle is, on a piece of paper. This is why it's impossible. I think people do try to quantify it, but I think it's a fool's game. Like some people will sit there and be like, okay, there's a 25% probability that I'll hit this return. There's a there's a 14% probability I'll hit this return. Is that is that what you're saying? How well, so actually I kind of agree with that line of thinking, but I don't I don't do the math where I assign various 
probable outcomes. Yeah, because it's so challenging to get those right. Yeah, right. You're, there's just assumptions, but I do think in terms of probability, and I think that's actually how most people should think. Yeah, it makes right? sense because nobody can for, project the future. Forecasters are charlatans, economists are fools. Right? Nobody can predict what's going to happen. What's that Galbraith quote? Right? It's like there's economists who who know that they don't know the forecast, right? And there's economists that don't know they don't know the forecast. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So you can't predict. So I think that it's best to think in terms of probabilities, but I, I don't assign a, a number and say, oh, well, this one's this one scores a 45%. Yeah. So what, are, so what are the things you look at to sort of evaluate the risk that a, a specific asset has? I try to think about, okay, well, looking back at the cash flow of this asset and given what we're paying for it, what is the likelihood we're not going to be able to cover our debt service? Because that is the number one reason real estate, especially cash flowing type of real estate where you don't have one tenant, right? Like a multifamily building, a, uh, a large office complex, right? Where you don't have a, only one tenant. Yeah. You have diversified tenant base. Yeah, Usually you sense. don't get crushed from everybody just vacating the building, right? There's leases in place. They're right. contractual. So I think about it more in terms of what is the probability the cash flow is going to go low enough where we're not going to be able to service the debt or uh, we're not going to be able to refinance the debt when our loan is up. Oh, that makes sense. So you look you look maybe the last five or 10 years and you look at what the cash flows were, you you know, you know, sort of evaluate whether or not those cash flows would have been sufficient to cover whatever debt payment you're going to get. This is actually, the, I think, the, the only real way you, you can protect yourself from risk is thinking about a margin of safety. Because we don't know what's going to happen. We can't predict outlier events. Black swans happen. But if we have a margin of error, you're not razor thin on the amount of cash flow that the property kicks off or the business kicks off relative to the amount of debt you have to pay each month. Then at least you know you can survive some fluctuations in the marketplace. Well, and that, do you do you look at that information and use that to evaluate how much debt to get on the property? Or generally, have you ever Both. You, have you already decided how much debt you're going to get? Both. The two are tied together. Right. So if I so you'll kind of go back and forth on yeah, so, thinking about that. Yeah, we don't say we don't go, oh, we always are gonna go for seventy five percent leverage. Mm-hmm. Right. The leverage is always gonna be tied to that particular asset. And there's some times where you feel, oh wow, we can go a little bit higher here because we're getting this at such a great price. Uh, and there's other times where like, well, this asset is under it's underappreciated for its growth potential and what we can do with it, but in the current near term, there's not a lot of room here to pay off the debt or to pay the debt every month. So let's go lower leverage on this one because we're going to make our returns later, not off the, the near-term cash flow. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so okay, so, so that was real estate risk. risk. Let's talk about private equity risk. How do you think about it? Is that all you think about? It's just how you're going to cover the debt payment? You don't think about like, <laughs> you know, are people going to want to live here? Well, yeah, I didn't know. It, we were, are we going to go deep into real estate again I, analysis? I think it's interesting. I don't even, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe we don't. But okay. I, it, is that, I mean, you know, given a, given a specific deal, like, you know, isn't there a lot more that would yeah, go into like of your... Course. Yeah, so you, when you're looking at a portfolio of real estate, you would want to figure out how to stagger the, the loan maturities, 
right? As we just talked about that, that factors into your risk analysis. Also, you want to think about that market, right? What is the likelihood that market is actually going to uh, see job loss? Yeah. So I I feel like, you know, I've talked to you kind of, you know, in our casual conversations and you do a lot of work around determining how interesting a market is. I feel like, you know, you got, you put up, you know, sort of. Yeah. There's like 20 different variables. Ads or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, there, you do due diligence on the market. You do some testing, right? You want to figure out what demand is like and you want to figure out what the supply is like. So there's, you know, 20 variables that are really matter. I, you know, some people look at a hundred and I, you know, I'm a big believer in Pareto principle, right? It's like the, there's only really, you know, 20% of the stuff equates to 80% of the outcome. So how do you, right? so let's just take the market variable, for instance, like, you know, you're, you're, let's say you're looking at a, a mobile home park. How much do you think about how much, you know, how attractive this market is over the next five or 10 years? Is this, are people going to want to, you know, rent manufactured housing or live in manufactured housing? Is there going to be enough people? How much of that risk do you think about? Well, yeah, so I don't spend a ton of time thinking about the overarching thesis. That, for each individual asset, that I've already flushed out and I'm comfortable with, right? People need affordable housing. That's not going away anytime. So then I spend most of the time thinking at the micro level about that individual market and that individual yeah, asset. Like that specific area. Yeah. And then you also are looking at kind of the, the tenant quality, right, in terms of the cash flow. You're looking at how many of these homes are owned by the tenants versus the, the actual owner of the property because that's an indication of, the, you know, that property is a little riskier because it's got more tenant turnover. I mean, we can go into two hours of the stuff, but... But is this are these the kind of risks where it's sort of binary? It's like you're kind of using your instincts. You're like, look, the market's fine. Like, I'm yep. not... I'm either worried about the market and I think it's not a good market or I actually am fine with this market and it's okay. I mean, is that essentially kind of how you think about it? Yes. Okay, so yeah... yeah. Okay, so you you think about these risks and you evaluate them, but it it feels it feels pretty. Yeah, at the end, it it comes down to feel, right? Yeah. Because out of those twenty different variables, you never get all twenty where you're like perfect, perfect, check, check, right? There's always a mix. There's always like three or four. You're like, ah, oh, that could be better, right? Are but there are there any just deal killers? Meaning like. Let's say the numbers pencil out. You can cover your debt payments. You can, you think you're going to hit your 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 minimum return based on the, the you know the history of cash flows. Yeah, hundred percent. What are the deal killers? Like what are th- what yeah. are risks that you just won't take? Yeah. So in real estate, because the math works really well, especially in multifamily or mobile home parks or self storage, anything where the cash flow is a little bit higher, the math works really well. So you need to be extra careful about blow up risk. Like what things could actually just kill the deal. Mm-hmm. It's unlikely, but you it can't even be ten percent likely that that might happen, right? It's yeah. got to be one percent or less than one percent. Yeah. So because if you just do the basics, the returns are amazing. Right. Yeah. So you don't focus on the upside. Yeah. It's like every asset, the numbers would pencil out, right? Yeah. The numbers just work. So then, yeah. So what are the, what are the blow up risks that you really worry about? So we talked about debt. That's how 90% of real estate guys get in trouble. That's the big one. That's the big one. Another one is, would be something like environmental where you didn't do the right due diligence and you missed something in environmental. You didn't get a clean phase one. You were just completely careless. I got you. But right? you, can, you can minimize that risk. Yeah, by you doing minimize that through okay. due so diligence. Yeah, I got you. You completely missed the economy in that market, right? Maybe tied to two employers and they go bust and everybody leaves that market. You can get comfortable with that though, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's what due diligence is, is trying to just figure out, okay, that, that seems low probability. That's fine. Low probability, fine, right? You're yeah. just trying to get rid of the ones that, ooh, that, you know, that seems like that's 25% could happen. And then you probably don't do that deal. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So th- there are a few deal, deal killers. Debt seems to be the big one. And as long as you, is, if the debt one works out, 
and assuming the other ones kind of feel binary. You're like, yeah, I'm okay with this market, or yeah, yeah. I'm, I think the environmental risk the, here is the low. The toughest one is probably <clears throat> infrastructure, right? Because even when you get engineers to look at everything, right, it, you could miss on infrastructure, not really with manufactured housing. Like usually, the, usually the, the roads are falling apart, kind of, or like the roads. It's about more the, just like the systems, like the plants. No, like if you have an office building, the roof actually fails or the facade fails of an office building, right? Those are the harder ones because those are really big capital items. But again, it's I guess what strikes me about what strikes me about these risks are, are that there are very sort of you know easy ways to minimize these or at least to evaluate them right you have a roofer come out and look at your roof and i'm only, I'm only saying this in comparison to the risks that i think about which are oh yeah are you guys so, you guys are crazy i don't know how you do it <laughs> like you know we don't have a roofer that can come out and look at the roof the, the proverbial roof of the uh you know some private company that we're looking at right it's like <laughs> uh, it's just interesting to me so it, it makes sense to me again i i guess i just go back to like it's so it's fascinating to me how much more exact you know, I think real estate it's can more be precise. precise. Yeah. You know. If you do your if you do hard work, it's easier to get a great outcome. Uh, with PE, with venture, you could work your ass off and still get a pretty crappy outcome. Yeah. So what's what's I guess if there's one take home lesson for people listening to this podcast, I guess it was if you're you know, if you're a precision, if you like precision and exactness and like <laughs> narrow bands of risk, I think real estate's for you. Yeah. If you want to take a real flyer. Which is funny because I guess that does fit with our personalities, right? Or at least our wives would say that. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Yeah. That's no, that's that's interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. All right, well, let's talk about private equity. Yeah, risk. so yeah, right. So I'm, you know, I look at I'm currently evaluating private companies to buy, acquire, and operate. Right. So you know, we're looking at you know these are businesses that are not publicly traded. Uh, they don't have a stock price. Um, and so what I'm doing would be considered private equity PE. Um, and so I would say private equity probably is riskier than real estate, of course, but it, not as risky as venture capital. Uh, you know, in venture capital, you usually don't have much of a track record of a company to evaluate. Whereas the businesses that I'm looking at, you know, a lot of these have been around for five, 10, 15 years. And so you can look at the history. So anyway, so I think we're probably sitting in somewhere in the between real estate and venture on the, on the, uh, risk curve. Yeah. At least you have a cash flow, right? A history of financials for these companies. We do. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, you know, and that's really beneficial. And so, you know, I think the way we think about risk, you know, so we, when we evaluate a company, we'll put together a financial model and we put together projections of where we think the business is going to go. I think we've kind of talked about this on previous episodes and we'll do a base case where a base, the way we think about a base case is that, you know, 80% or more of the time, we're going to at least hit this base case, right? This feels very, we're very comfortable that we can hit this, you know, hit this expected return. And of course, that return has to meet our investors minimum return for them to want to do the deal. And so everyone's happy. And then we have an upside case where it's like, hey, maybe, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of the time, we're going to achieve the returns of this upside case. And then we do a downside case where, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, it's only 5%, five to 10% probability or less that Hey, this is actually going to happen, but this is sort of what we think is the worst case scenario. Um, and so that, you know, we do that. And so there's probabilities associated with that. But I think, I think, you know, again, I think it's a little misleading because anytime you, you know, you're putting assumptions, a bunch of assumptions into these models, there's always, there's always risk that you're, you're wrong on these things. So we, I guess our shortcut is the way we think about risk in three broad buckets. We think about market risk, execution risk, and product risk. And so, wow. Yeah, and it's you know, it's just kind of easy way to think about a company. Well, we'll look at you know, let's say we're we're looking at a software company, and it makes us you know it makes software that you know let's say it manages uh, you know vet hospitals or veterinarian clinics, right? And so we'll kind of think about the market itself. Okay, hey, you know 
is there anything going on with veterinarian hospitals or veterinary clinics or, you know, are are people going to still have pets? Are are those pets going to get sick? Are they going to take their pets into the vet? And so we'll kind of think about the market. Um, You know, is the market adopting this kind of software? Are we too early? Uh, You know, maybe the market's all, you know, manual right now and it's too early for, for, for this type of software. So we just kind of look at the market. Is it, is it a big enough market? You know, is there, are we going to cap out at some kind of low number? We're not going to, the market's never going to be much bigger. So, and again, that's, and that's, that's a big one for us, right? We, we don't want to take much of a market risk. We usually look at companies that are in markets that exist and they're big markets. And, you know, we think there's room to grow in those markets. So if a company I think has serious market risk, that's a real problem for us. And we probably will not do that deal. Um, the execution risk I think is interesting. So this one is where, Hey, the market's there. Um, you know, the product's fine, you know, this is, the product's a good product, but hey, look, you know, there's, there's a risk that you just don't do a good job of running this business, right? Like you, you fail to hire the right people or your people fail to achieve, you know, the minimum you know, metrics that you've set out for them. Yeah, you, know, you just don't do a good job executing and frankly, your competitors beat you on this. That's, this is the, we blew it risk. Yeah, this is the like, we just suck and <laughs> man, we don't deserve anything. So, so that's that's a risk we're willing to take because we you know we have confidence in our ability to operate a company and our conf- confidence and we we ha- we have misguided to or not miss yeah completely maybe wrong but you know <laughs> we're we're willing to take that risk and I think our investors are willing to take that risk because it's like hey that's that's what we're here for we're here to add value and operate the business effectively and then the third one is this product risk right where whatever whatever product or service that the company is offering you want it to be good you want it to be quality you, you don't want to buy a company with just a real crappy product right so you could have a great market and you're comfortable that you could execute that business uh but just they have a terrible product and again that's so product is another risk that we would not be willing to take so these are these are just three broad buckets that we think about that kind of help us just kind of help us sort of assign, uh, you know, hey, where is the actual risk and whether we're going to hit our minimum, minimal acceptable return on this deal. Yeah, and it's interesting that in your world, because you talked about those, those are much harder to evaluate, by the way, than the real estate, what we talked about. I mean, about. yeah, it's, it's very instinctual or, you know, sort yeah. of, you, know, you kind of have to go with your gut on a lot of these. Therefore, or tend to pay a lower price per every dollar, right, that company is kicking off then because... I think there's a wider dispersion of possible outcomes. I think, right? Like, you know, there's people who are paying 25 multiples on real estate income in California right now. Well, yeah. Some are paying 33. Good right? point. Yeah, good point. And whereas in our world, you know, it's you know six to eight times, prof, yeah, five to eight times profit is is much you know is much more much more common. You know, we're going to have a guest on the podcast, our first guest coming up, uh, who tends to pay sounds like he pays more like two to six Mm. multiples because there's so many possible outcomes and there's so many risks that you have to try to factor in it's not not a science yeah and it's it's frankly what i like about the business right it's like hey we we think we can really improve this business or, or bend the growth curve here or grow a lot because hey the market's big and you know the product's great and uh you know we think we can execute better than the competition so you know, I, it's fun, but you're, you know, yeah, it is risky. And there, there is obviously a lot of, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So it is, it's a little bit more, uh, uh, fraught with peril. And of course there's other risks that we think about. I mean, there's legal risk, right? Where, Hey, like hopefully the company's not doing something illegal or hasn't done in the past or it's going to come back to bite you. Uh, you know, financial risk, are you going to have, again, the, the sort of the amount of money to cover your debt? We think about that too, but Given that our debt payment or our debt load is much lower than in real estate, usually, um, usually we get pretty comfortable that we can cover the debt payments if we if we even get debt. 
So, uh, yeah, so the market, the execution, the product, those are the big ones we think about. And you guys are more focused on the growth story too, right? If you miss the growth story, then it really just wasn't worth your time. Yeah. Yeah. If we, if we don't grow a business significantly, then, then that was a miss. And, and, you know, it could have been execution. We didn't execute. It could have been that we misjudged the size of the market or how, you know, how much the market would adopt this type of a product. Or hopefully it wasn't that we misjudged how good the product was, but that's always a possibility too. And that's also a function of how you guys are structured, right? Where you're you're not looking to buy 20 companies, right? At least right now. Right. Yeah, just one. Just one right now. So you can't blow up that analysis yeah. and buy a company that doesn't grow. Well, yeah. And it, it's funny you say that because it, it makes it very difficult when you're just buying one deal. Because, you know, you have a portfolio, right? So you have you have multiple assets. Most most private equity funds and venture funds have multiple assets. They can spread their risk around. But yeah, it's this is this is critical for us to get right, given that we're just going to buy one. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I'm starting to appreciate. When you're constructing a portfolio, every deal you go into, you're kind of looking for a certain return, at least in the beginning. And now I realize that that's not what you need, actually. There's plenty. Of, if you get the singles on a bunch of them, right, and you then you have a couple of home runs, a couple of doubles, right, that's actually what ends up happening. There's no way you construct a portfolio where they're all Please don't tell me. You, doubles, <laughs> you're, you're, bas- you're basically just reaffirming the fact that it's super risky to buy one deal, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It, well, it is, but this is this goes to the whole you know analysis that we're talking about. You also could hit you know you could triple, quadruple your yeah. investment right in one year, two years if you you well, know, it, grow the sales that quickly. In full circle, this kind of goes back to Harry Markowitz's modern oh, portfolio did theory. We right? just where, prove Harry correct, <laughs> where you construct a portfolio of investments whose risks sort of offset each other, or at least. At least they don't, uh, they're not as risky as each other at the same time or something like that. Well, right? this is what actually I agree that, you know, investors should be doing. You should be taking, okay, let's put some money in real estate. Let's put some money in stock market, just passive ETFs because, you know, nobody knows what the heck's going on there, right? And let's put some money in private equity. Let's put some money with a search fund that, that could really knock it out of the park, right? This is constructing a portfolio yes. that's not completely correlated. All these returns are not one-to-one. They don't go up and down to the same, the same pace when we have a crisis or a boom. Yeah, so I, f- I felt like we started off a little skeptical of the academics here, but I think we're, are we coming back around and saying, you know what, good job, guys. We, uh, we, we, we slap, we applaud you. You actually kind of nailed it. Is that what we're doing here? I'm a little in between. <laughs> a little in between. No, I still, and I really disagree with this whole concept of the volatility equating to risk. For the but long, yeah, for the long but term, of yeah. course, yeah, I yeah. believe in diversifying a portfolio of assets that don't correlate. But if you're trying to optimize for low volatility, I think you're misguided, right? Because I mean, I think about think about Seize Candy, right? Which is Warren Buffett's oh, one of his so favorite. Good. So good, right? Grayson will go to uh, the mall and just pick out a Seize Candy, just one. Well, I'll, I'll offer to buy one, but the, as part of their business model, they give you a free sample, <laughs> so they they oftentimes won't charge me. And I actually tell them, like, please let me pay, and they won't. So. Thank you, Warren Buffett. <laughs> Anyways, back to Seize Candy. Seize Candy's been around forever and kicks off a ton of cash flow, right? Warren loves this company. But if you looked at that company's cash flow, I, I think it's only really profitable two quarters a year. I think they lose money the other two quarters, right? I think it, it's Christmas and, I don't know, Easter? Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day, right? It's like... It's the free sample. It's lumpy cash flow. But nobody's going to argue that, oh, Seize is volatile, not a good investment, right? It's a, it's a hell of a company. Yeah, because over the long run, it's just it's spitting off a ton of cash. Yeah, and and also it's it's incredibly predictable long term. Like, what is candy going to go away? Is people love of sugar going to go away? So I, I think that you know human beings are good at judging small risk. We're bad at judging kind of big outlier risk. Yeah, 
right? It's like the... Um, Isn't that what that Black Swan book's about? It is. The joke I like is the lady who uh, is pregnant and she's complaining about the noise of the jackhammer next door, about what the noise is doing to her unborn child as she's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> was that... Okay. Is that my mom or is that, what, <laughs> is that what you're talking about? I don't know. I just feel like when people are thinking about what investments are going to go into, you can't just look at volatility in short term. You have to be thinking about what is the, the likelihood or the odds that this thing's going to zero given the 100 million possible outcomes out there. Yeah. And, and Harry, if you're out there and you're listening, thanks for being a fan. And uh, we'd love to have you on the show so you can just rebut everything we just said. So looking forward to that. <laughs> thanks for listening to The Alternative Investor. Since you made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.